Good morning. As I hope you've heard today, we're glad that you're here with us. We're glad that you've chosen to worship with us. My name is Adam Sandwick. I serve as one of the elders here, and it's my privilege to preach this morning. Christian, what is your deterrence to sin? A good, simple definition of sin is anything that, anything that we think, say, or do that disobeys God or breaks or violates His commands. As Christians, we're called to not sin. But why? Do you think God is waiting to catch you? As if to say, aha, I knew he wasn't serious when he prayed for salvation. Or, it was only a matter of time before she exhausted her last chance. Is your deterrence to sin based on a doctrine or a belief about God that if you do enough good, you could earn more of his favor? Or worse yet, there lurks the possibility that you could perhaps lose your salvation? Christian, do you have any deterrence to sin in your life? Or do you find yourself continually giving into sin without hesitation or remorse? How about the non-Christian? The idea of sin is not popular. There's a wide range of views on what is truth. Who has the right to determine what truth is? And what it means to violate that truth. Here we believe and teach the triune God of the Bible. And in His truth, as revealed to us in His written word, the Bible. And in Himself, in the person of Jesus Christ. You all know what this is. That's a wedding ring. Uh, does this ring in itself have any ability in and of itself to hold me to the vows I made to my wife before God and others? In other words, can this ring make me act like a married man? One day I got to work and I realized I hadn't put it on. Was I not married that day? Or am I free to act unmarried if I'm not wearing my wedding ring? I'll come back to that later. Uh... For all of us, we want to look at the Bible to form and shape our thoughts. So turn with me, if you haven't, to our passage this morning, Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 11. If you didn't bring a Bible, I'd encourage you or invite you to use one of the black Bibles in the chairs around you. It'd be page 942 in that Bible. <clears throat> Additionally, if you don't own a Bible, we genuinely invite you to take one of those home with you. And it's our prayer that the Lord would use His Word to grow you in your knowledge of Christ. If you've been with us any length of time, you know that we are not in the middle of a sermon series on Romans. And as you saw today's passage, chapter 6, we're not beginning at the book of Romans. So for some context, here's a very high-level view of what's going on in this book. Pastor David Helm and other biblical scholars talk about the melodic line of a biblical Bible. Just like musical pieces have a key melody that's woven throughout, each book of the Bible has its own unique, distinctive sound or contribution to the entire story of the whole of Scripture. 
And for Romans, I want to quickly show you that its melodic line, if you will, is the obedience of faith that flows from a right understanding and acceptance of the gospel. I'll say it again. The obedience of faith that flows from a right understanding and acceptance of the gospel. And I'm going to take you to three passages before we jump into our text today. So flip with me, if you will, just to the beginning of Romans, chapter 1. This is the intro. I'm only going to read uh, the back half of verse 4 and verse 5. Pardon me. It says, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So we see there he mentions bringing about the obedience of faith. If you will, flip forward with me to the closing verses of Romans. This is Romans chapter 16. This is just his concluding thoughts, parting words. The conclusion 25 through 27 really echoes a lot of what the intro is, but I'm just going to read verse 26 for today. According to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So we didn't read the entirety of the intro or the conclusion passages, but the closely paralleled language ought to tip us off that Paul is revealing key themes. I mean, come on. How many of you in high school or college English lit class the night before or the morning of a test read the first and the last chapters of the assigned novel and you squeaked by because you had a cursory understanding of what's going on in the whole Bible, whole book, pardon me. Uh, I'm not suggesting that as a good practice in scripture or even in English literature, but uh, it's it's worth noting that Paul is mentioning those things to, clo- to open and to close the book. If I'm going to set forward a uh, thesis statement for the book of Romans, look in the middle of chapter 1, please. Verses 16 and 17. Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. While you're turning, I would also use this opportunity to encourage you. We have a men's Bible study on Friday mornings that Gent leads over the book of Romans. It's been tremendous. Actually, some of my uh, desire for preaching from this passage came from there. Uh, This is Romans chapter 1, verses 16, and we've talked about this as a thesis statement for the book. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So what is the gospel? It's the power of God, not just a story, not just facts. And it alone is God's means of salvation, making us righteous or putting us in right standing with Him. How is it achieved? Only through faith. But faith is not only necessary for our initial salvation... It's by faith that we live each day. As the passage says, from faith for faith. Or beginning and ending in faith. Or the righteous shall live by faith. Or the obedience of faith. So finally for Romans, here's a four word outline for the book of Romans. 
Sin, salvation, sovereignty, service. Sin, chapters 1 through 3. Why we all stand condemned before God. Salvation, chapters 4 through 8. God's only remedy for sinners. Sovereignty, chapters 9 through 11. God is and always has been in control. Specifically in the realm of salvation also. Service, chapters 12 through 16. The obedience of faith that follows salvation. Alright, so that's a wide lens, ultra zoomed out view of the book of Romans. Today we're going to zoom in on our passage that comes in the salvation portion of the book. And for immediate context, Jill, the reader, she read from the beginning of chapter 6. And to open the chapter, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul uses questions like that throughout his writings in the Bible. Remember, we're reading a letter that was actually written by him to people. Most of the time, he's not there face to face when it's written. So, to uh, refute misconceptions or misapplications of what he's writing, he often poses questions in order to draw out further implications of his teaching. And it's not far-fetched to think that this question here in verse 1 is one that he routinely encountered at his preaching ministry. If God's grace is powerfully displayed in that it covers my sin, why can't I continue to live a life of sin in order to more powerfully show off His grace? Welsh preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that this line of accusation is a natural response to the preaching of the true gospel. Biblical Christianity stands alone among religions and worldviews and how God grants righteousness. Or right standing with God. It's all through faith and depends on nothing in us or from us. So a person might think, if that's the case, there's no reason to fight against sin. Especially in light of Paul's words immediately preceding in Romans 5.20, he writes, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Well, Paul's emphatic answer is, by no means would we continue living in sin. And he appeals to the believer's union with Christ to bolster his answer. This morning we're going to look at what it means to be united with Christ. This is a wonderful doctrine or belief about God understanding that many of us don't fully grasp. On your outline, think of point one, united with Christ, as the umbrella under which the second and third points come under. Not three separate doctrines, it's the doctrine of united with Christ or our union with Christ and then how we're united in his death and united in his life or resurrection. So, first point, united with Christ. Theologian Wayne Grudem writes, union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers and Christ through which Christians receive every benefit of salvation. The relationships include the fact that we are in Christ, Christ is in us, we are like Christ, and we are with Christ. I'll say those again. I have a couple of scripture references to write down to think about that. But first, we are in Christ. 
And there are three ways that I'll show that Scripture teaches we are in Christ. So still, we are in Christ, in God's eternal plan. So a Scripture reference to write down is Ephesians 1, 3, and 4. You don't have to turn there right now. But it talks about God in His divine foreknowledge saw us and chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. So none of us were born before the foundations of the world, but God in His divine foreknowledge saw us as in Christ before the foundations of the world. Another way we are in Christ is during Christ's life on earth. A verse to write down is 1 Corinthians 1.30. It says, You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification, and redemption. So just as God treated us as in Adam, when Adam sinned at the fall in the garden, God treats the believer as in Christ, in all Christ did, which includes his life on earth. The third way that the Bible teaches we are in Christ would be during our lives right now. A verse to write down would be 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. So those are ways that the scriptures show us we are in Christ. Second of these relationships modeled in the union of Christ would be Christ is in us. And a reference to write down there is Galatians 2.20. Again, you don't have to turn there. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Third, we are like Christ. You could write down 1 John 2, 6. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. We are like Christ. And then fourthly, we are with Christ. And a reference there, Matthew 28, 20, the the Great Commission, Jesus sending them out. He says, And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So, we are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are like Christ. And we are with Christ. Alright. What does this all mean for the believer? Do you actually believe that God treats you as if what is true of Jesus is true of you? Or do you think He just sees you as a scofflaw, repeat offender... But thankfully, you have the get-out-of-jail-free card in your gospel confession. Well, let's look at and listen to how what you've been saved from and saved to is more than anything you could imagine. Paul is systematically showing that a right understanding of the gospel always leads to the obedience of faith, compelled not by duty, not by obligation, not by fear, but by Christ in us. And in our passage, he specifically details two implications of our union with Christ. We are united with him in his death. We are united with him in his life or resurrection life. I'll say resurrection life so that we can just differentiate between his life on earth and then now his glorified life. So to our second point, we are united with him in his death. The structure of our paragraph, verses 5 through 11, if you look, 
Verse 5 says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This verse you could underline or highlight if you do, or just write outside. It's kind of the thesis statement for this paragraph. Verses 6 through 7 are going to draw out the first half of that verse, what it means to be united with him in a death like his. And verses 8 through 10 will draw out the second half of that verse, what it means to be united with him in his resurrection or in a life like his. In verse 5, when he says, if, don't think of that as doubting or optimistically hopeful. This is a confident, think of it more like a since statement. A since this is true, since we know this is true, then this is true. Paul's writing early in church history And he's assuming that we all know, not we, that that who he's writing to, they know that they have been united with Christ. If we have been united with him in a death like this. Again, it's not an if, it's a since. Uh, There's no, yep, sorry, no hint of doubt. United with him, joined together. That phrase, the King James uses, if we've been planted together with him, It's to image the growing together of two things becoming one. The phrase is not used in other translations I saw, but I like it because it brings to mind the imagery that Jesus uses in John 15 when he teaches about the vine and the branches. When he says, apart from the vine, the branches can do nothing. Paul also, later in Romans 11, will use grafting branches imagery for how God changes us from apart from him to a part of him. And then when Paul writes, we shall be united with him, it's not a future reality, this idea of we shall be united with him. It's a present reality for the believer. I understand in verse 5, when you see the word resurrection, that you think only after death. But if we look back to verse 4 in the same passage, same chapter, Paul says, that we were raised, Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of God, that we too might walk in the newness of life because of Christ's resurrection. It has power to change our lives for eternity starting now, not just when we die. And then in verse 5, there's a repeated phrase, like his, a death like his, a resurrection like his, Other translations use in the likeness of his death or in the likeness of his resurrection. The ESV just says a death like his. In the likeness seems to make it easier for our minds to grasp that even though we weren't physically present participating in the actual bodily death and resurrection of Christ, God thinks of us as having gone through it in Christ. I'll point you back up again to verses 3 and 4. Paul, I'm not going to read it, but Paul points to our baptism as representing the same reality. Now, we don't teach that baptism saves, but we believe baptism is an outward sign of an inward reality, an inward accomplished transformation. 
We don't believe and teach that a person's salvation is only effectual upon baptism. In the same way, we don't believe Scripture teaches us that our union with Christ is only effectual upon baptism. It's representative of what has already happened. That's why we're united with Christ in the likeness of his death and resurrection. In verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Look at how he projects certainty. We know that. We don't have a faith that's built on flimsy hypotheses. I'll remind you how he began and ends the book of Romans. The gospel of God, which was made known through the prophetic writings, there's a certainty to it. Uh, And we know that even the early church's criteria for inclusion in what we call the canon of Scripture, our New Testament, is that these books were written by eyewitnesses, and by and large they were written during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. So there's no hint of speculation here when he's talking about these truths of who we are in Christ. So in verse 6, there's two phrases I wanted to focus on a second. Old man, or old self, the ESV says old self, and body of sin. I'll repeat. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we'd no longer be enslaved to sin. If you think about it, these two can't logically mean the same thing. For the Christian, our old man, or who we were in Adam, slaves to sin, under the dominion and rule of sin, as Paul just showed in Romans 5, that's died. The verb tense he uses means a one-time, past event, done deal. I would also point you to Galatians 2.20. You could write that. Galatians 6.14. Both of those say, we have been crucified. Uh... It's done. Whereas in this verse, the body of sin, that refers to sin's manifestation in our lives or us giving ourselves over again to sin. This is what should be continually waning in the life of the believer. Or as Paul wrote, brought to nothing, rendered powerless, be done away with, be annulled, be destroyed. Nowhere does the Bible teach us that the believer doesn't sin. But unchecked and unrepentant sin should not be the defining characteristic of the believer. I said logically they can't be the same thing, old man, body of sin. Just make them the same and see if the sentence sounds like it makes sense. Our old man was crucified so that our old man would be brought to nothing. No, one has been killed so that the other might lose its power in us. It might help to think of these terms as it relates to our salvation. Our justification is a one-time event through which God saved us from the penalty of sin. Salvation past, that's our old man crucified. Our sanctification is an ongoing process through which God saves us from the power of sin in our lives. That's salvation present. That's our body of sin being brought to nothing. And our glorification one day will occur when God ultimately saves us from the very presence of sin. That's salvation future. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, We are never called upon to crucify our old man 
because it's already happened. However, we are called upon to not go on living as if he's still there. Paul in Colossians chapter 3, 1 through 10 parallels this same reasoning. Specifically verses 9 and 10, he says, You've put off the old self and you've put on the new self. So put away the deeds associated with the old self. Stop acting like you're still in slavery to the old man. Or in his book, uh, The Hole in Our Holiness, Kevin Young says, Be who you are. Live like it. Now I said unchecked and unrepentant sin should not be the defining characteristic of the believer. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John's towards the very end of the Bible. Uh, after 1 and 2 Peter, before 2 John. You can write down 1 John 3, 4 through 10. I'm just going to read verses 8 and 9. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for sin's seed abides, for God's seed abides in him, pardon me. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. He makes it sound like any kind of sin means you're not born of God. But just so you know he's not saying that, but that's not what he really means. Turn back to 1 John, if you will, please. Just a, couple, a page back, maybe. 1 John, and I'm going to read 1, 8 through 10. I meant chapter 1. You're already in 1 John. Chapter 1, 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. So John writing, he's fully aware of the remaining presence of sin in the life of the believer. But the difference is the repentance described in chapter 1 verse 9 that wasn't seen in chapters 3 verse 4 through 10 that we read previously. I'm going to go back to the, our passage in Romans, chapter 6. Continuing on what it means that we have died to sin. Verse 7, he just writes, For one who has died has been set free from sin. We should see this as a general statement that death negates the dominion of sin over a person's life. It's another way to restate the truth that our spiritual death to sin released us from its rule over us. It just means that death ends that relationship. Paul uses similar analogies to show how death releases a person from obligation later in chapter 6 and again in chapter 7. Remember, this is all adding color to what it means that we have died with Christ or died to sin. Now let's look at the implications of being united with, to Christ in his resurrection or in his life now. So third point, united in his life. Or united in his resurrected life. Do you readily believe that salvation from God. By his grace through faith in the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
saves you to abundant life that includes life on earth now? Or do you only think of salvation as an after-death experience? And I'm not even referring to the flimsy at best or the heretical at worst idea of fire insurance salvation, if you've ever heard of that. People who by all appearances live as if the Bible isn't true or has no claim on their life, but they claim Christianity to hedge for the afterlife. Also, there are many well-meaning, lifelong Christians who just don't understand that salvation includes their present reality. This can happen due to a person's circumstances. Look at all the bad things that are happening to me now. How can this be the abundant life? Or just a surface understanding of the gospel. Somebody could think, John 3.16 promises eternal life to those who believe. I know this life is not eternal, so it must refer to after I die. Well, what does the Bible mean when it talks about being united with Christ in life? Let's look at verses 8 through 10. Verse 8 is very similar to verse 5. Kind of another since then statement. And we just looked at the implications of what it means that we've died with Christ. But what does it mean to live with Him? Again, I'll say it. It's not just a future promise. Life in Christ is a present reality for the believer. Remember Jesus on earth. This is John 10.10. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly or have it to the full. Please, for God's glory and your own good, don't mistake that to mean that your life will instantly get materially better the moment you believe. Trouble and hardship are words more often used to describe the life of the believer in the Bible and throughout Christian history, than rich and carefree. Maybe it's helpful to think of this in terms of the great exchange. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It's just uh, a book or two over from Romans to the right in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And I'm going to read verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made Christ to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Christ we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ took our sin and in exchange gave us his righteousness. I said, I called it the great exchange. That's not, I didn't coin it. I know that many, many Christians are much more familiar with Christ taking our sin to himself or what we are saved from than they are familiar with God granting us Christ's righteousness, what we are saved to. So I'm going to circle back to the wedding ring analogy. Before I was married, I thought I had a good idea of what it meant to be the husband of one wife, the husband to one wife. But if I'm honest, What I mostly thought about could be easily boiled down to lists of do's and don'ts. And once married, the idea of taking two separate lives, uniting them, and then expending all I have to cultivate oneness with my wife has been the overarching theme of my marriage. With mixed results on my part, full disclosure, but God willing, trending toward unity. But simply being married by law doesn't accomplish that. 
Now, what would you say of me as a husband if you personally knew and observed me running around on my wife, spending our resources on myself at the expense of my wife and family, rarely spending the night at our house, speaking ill of her and proud of it all along? I don't care what you believe about God in the Bible. I do, but for this, I don't care what you do there. I know what you would think of me as a husband. You would say, not good. But what if, when challenged, I looked you in the eye, pointed to my wedding ring, and I proudly said, I'm a legally married man who made a commitment to my wife, represented by this ring. You might say I was someone who got married to escape loneliness, or insecurity, or cultural stigmas, but you certainly wouldn't say I was someone living in light of what it means to be a husband. Hopefully you would say the ring means nothing in itself. And whatever vows I made ring hollow in light of my observable actions. In the illustration, I'm not single, but I'm also not living in the fullness of a married man. You see, just the status of being married by the letter of the law won't transform my behavior. It's only when I embrace the identity of a husband united to my wife that true change occurs. Someone needs to tell me to start acting like a husband. Does that give you an idea of being saved from something? Yeah, I'm saved from singleness or, and being saved to something. Unity with my wife. Marriage serves as a good illustration for us. We see how often God refers to his people as his bride throughout scripture. And he uses words like adultery and betrayal to depict sin and rebellion. It's the closest relationship on earth that reflects Christ and the believer. In Ephesians 5, Paul, he's giving instructions to husbands and wives. He quotes Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast or be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. You've heard that before. But listen to what Paul writes next. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, the more you think about it, the marriage analogy will eventually break down because it's much less one-sided than what Christ has done for us. But in the same way, you would not say that I'm a, pardon me, in the same way you would say I am a husband in name only in the above illustration, Paul makes the point there's no way a Christian who realizes what he or she has been saved from and to will desire to continue living as a slave to sin. The believer's union with Christ, if you look at verse 9, sorry. I apologize, I'm back in Romans. Verse 6, chapter 6, verse 9. Verse 9 says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The believer's union with Christ means the same is true for them. Unless Christ returns beforehand, there will be physical death for all of us. Hebrews 9, if you wanted to write down, Hebrews 9, 26 says, But as it is, he, Christ, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
This reminds me of a saying I've heard. Maybe you've heard it. It's actually from Martin Luther. He wrote it down in a column or the margin of a German translation of the Bible. He wrote, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. So here's what it means. We're all born into the world facing two deaths. Physical death and spiritual death. Unless we're born again or born of the Spirit, as Jesus says in John 3, we experience both deaths. But the moment we are born again or born of the Spirit, we no longer face the spiritual death. So, born once, die twice. Born twice, die once. Verse 10, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. The once for all death is not to be repeated. That's the gospel. We don't believe that there is continual sacrifice. It's sufficient for all time. And our union with Christ means that we are recipients of the good things his death and resurrection accomplished. And it, nearing the close, verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. This is Paul's ultimate appeal to the believer. Live like who you are. Be who you are. The outflow of our union with Christ is that we have passed from death to life. That's John 5.24 also. And we're called to live like it. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce writes, What is true of Jesus is true of us. His relationship to sin while he was in this life has passed forever. It is true of us as well, since we are joined to him. The key to holiness is to know this and to press on. So to revisit my opening question, what is your deterrence to sin? Our deterrence is that we are united to Christ. We've died to sin. It no longer has power in our lives. Or to put it another way, sin doesn't have the right or the authority to make you do anything. It's only, sin is only an unwelcome guest in the life of the believer. A strong guest, I, I admit that fully, but it has no authority over us. We who are in Christ, and who we are in Christ, justified, cleansed, redeemed, regenerated, brought from death to life, transferred from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of Christ, that has been done, and it can't be undone. Christians, we have a new identity in Christ. We don't have to pursue an identity based on fleeting things. Are you going hard at work so that you'll be noticed or recognized? You're already cherished more than you know by the author of life. And no earthly reward, money, recognition will satisfy your soul's deepest desires and needs. Are you constantly worried that God is disappointed in you? Or just waiting to strike you? Colossians 2, 13-14 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Being a just God means that our sins created an insurmountable debt. 
But because Jesus paid the debt, God no longer pursues payment from Christians. The debt is satisfied. But the flip side means, to continue the financial analogy, you've been given riches beyond anything you could imagine. That's what it means to be united with Christ in his resurrected life, to receive all the benefits of him. Stop walking on eggshells and worrying that God is out to get you. When you sin, we will, and when we do, go boldly to the Father in repentance because of who we are in Christ. Stop thinking of Him as the jailer who's just waiting for us to slip up so He can exact punishment. And start thinking of Him as the Father shown to us in Scripture, like in the prodigal son, who's heart, heart sick at our choices to pursue satisfaction apart from Him, And longs for us to come back so he can lavish his love on us. Non-Christian. Either you've experienced the cycle of disappointment. Of achieving accolades that somehow still leave you feeling empty. Or you're in the midst of that pursuit. Thinking that the next one or the bigger one is going to bring fulfillment. Hear the offer of a new joyous victorious identity through our union with Christ. To those who believe on him. The gospel tells us that we are more sinful and depraved than we dare believe. But we are more loved than we dare hope for. If you don't understand or if you have a question about what it means that we are sinful and that we are in need of a Savior. I, one of the other elders, somebody you came with would love to talk to you about that. You can find us after the service and ask about the glorious hope we have. In closing... Hear these words from the 18th century hymn by the English poet William Cowper. He begins by saying, Our works and efforts are useless means of obeying Christ and obtaining right standing with God. I'm going to pick up in his second stanza. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress. I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Then... To abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now, if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now, freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose His ways. What shall I do, was then the word, that I may worthier grow? What shall I render to the Lord, is my inquiry now. To see the law by Christ fulfilled and hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are nothing that you should save us, much less unite us to your perfect Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your truth, for your word, and we pray that you would continue to sanctify us in our pursuit of holiness, for your name's sake. Amen.